Hello, wonderful beings. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Shoe Talk, I'm speaking with Chad Little. Chad is a footwear creator, shoe educator, and a former designer at Jordan Brand and Nike. Uh, We talk about his story of why he became a shoe designer. We talk about his time at Nike, his frustration with how shoes are made, and we finish by chatting about the potential of footwear and what he's working on now. Really enjoyed the conversation with Chad and hope you find it interesting. This episode of the show is brought to you by TFC App. In 2019, we realized that the availability of information when it came to health was a bit overwhelming and that platforms like YouTube and Instagram are distraction traps. So we decided to create our own platform. TFC app was about creating a tool that facilitates time well spent. We don't try and steal your attention. We try to make sure that the time you spend browsing the curated content that we've um, sort of put together is time spent improving your health awareness. It's a self-funded platform and is still currently free for anyone to use. So if you visit the footcollective.app, that's a website, uh, you can access the iOS or web-based version. The app is constantly a work in progress, and we plan to continue working on the experience and improving things indefinitely. This episode of the show is also brought to you by the Roasters Pack. If you're into coffee, this awesome Canadian company provides a great subscription service that delivers fresh beans to your door each month and also gives you the story behind each of the craft roasters that the beans come from. If you check out theroasterspack.com, use the code FOOT at checkout, you'll get seven bucks off your first month. Lastly, this episode is sponsored by our travel partner, Nanook Protective Hard Cases. They make some badass hard cases in Canada that allow you to transport your equipment without it getting damaged. And you can check out what they offer by visiting nanook.com, N-A-N-U-K.com. That's it for sponsors. Let's dig into this episode. Hope you enjoy. It's the TFC. Audio Project. Hello, wonderful beings. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Shoe Talk, I'm speaking with Chad Little. Chad is a footwear creator, shoe educator, and a former uh, Nike and Jordan footwear designer. So, Chad, thanks for taking the time this morning to chat, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick, for having me. I appreciate it, and I'm looking forward to talking with you guys. Awesome. So, Sort of as our journey into footwear begins at TFC, it's, you know, it's nice to chat with awesome humans from the world of footwear because it is a unique industry, unique world, um, just to sort of get a better understanding about, about footwear and how it's currently done and sort of get different perspectives so that we can make sense of how we can sort of evolve and, and, uh, and bring this industry in a different direction. Um, so, you know, because this is your first time on the podcast, I think maybe it's a good place to start by just Telling the people a little bit about yourself, what gets you out of bed each morning, uh, what you love to do, what you're up to at the moment, and then, uh, and then after that, we can sort of dive into your uh, dive in and unpack your story. So start by telling people who you are. Sure. Um, so Chad Little again, and I would say what's getting me going through my day now is a combination of family, which is why I one big reason why I quit the footwear industry, not having enough time with family. Cool. Um, being able to be with my two and five-year-old uh, boys at home every day is a magical blessing, um, but we still have to pay bills. So my journey has evolved from being a kid who had aspirations of being this shoe designer to now selling off a collection of stuff that I gathered over the last 20 years, um, kind of as a reference library that I used when working for other companies. Uh, it's a lot easier to explain a detail that you want a shoe to be made like this versus right. having to draw it out and send out an idea to a factory to have them try it. You just send them a picture. So I always had good reason to have 
1500 pairs of shoes in my arsenal that's awesome <laughs> um and personal shoes too so it was um a cool place to start for me as a collector and then a kid that wanted to draw shoes and then it led to this floor design career that's now got me getting out of bed to sell it off and it's really because one i don't need it uh, two, I can't put my foot in any of it anymore because of going barefoot for the last few years. I have splayed out toes that aren't even close. Um, and I have a, a store. So in my website, my store, I, I sell these collectible shoes because a lot of them are rarer sample pairs or whatever that collectors like to get their hands on. Cool. Um, but I'm also a vintage clothing guy too. So I hit a lot of yard sales, thrift stores throughout the years. Just growing up, that was the way we were raised, just to save a penny. Nice. But it got, it got addictive when I started selling something on eBay about 20 years ago, and I realized that I could buy a pair of shoes for 10 bucks and sell them for 50 bucks right. just by taking a picture and selling them. So it became a business that I always did on the side as a shoe designer, mm -hmm. um, but a fun side business. And... And a big house can create a lot of stuff. You can see my background here from this. <laughs> yes. That's one of about 20 more racks of stuff that I keep on hand because I also do custom clothing too. So cool. after the uh, footwear world, kind of when I was at this point where I just called it quits for a little bit because I didn't want to be a part of it anymore, um, Nike told me I couldn't work for another shoe company for the next year because of what I knew. So I got paid by Nike to go, in my mind, just figure something else out. So I went to the apparel world down in L.A. and figured out how to make apparel and how to do anything I want to do with stitching or screen printing or whatever I want to do. So when we moved from, I mean, I'll go through the whole story, but at this point yeah. in my it, life. It, it, it's funny because people... You know, in my brain, I take a very utilitarian approach to footwear, where footwear is simply a piece of clothing for the foot. It is not, you know, the category is very blurred. And so it's funny how they're not, basically, like you said, you're not allowed to make clothing for the foot, but you can make clothing for the rest of the body. That's okay. Uh, uh -huh. And I find it very interesting. <laughs> and, you know, good for you for taking a step away from, you know, what you were doing, which clearly was taking up a good amount of your time. And just prioritizing what matters, you know, like people that, that take a step away from something they love to do and enjoy doing to spend more time with their family, I think really reflects a deeply rooted set of values that are strong with someone. And I think it's hard to find people these days that have a really big anchor to a set of values that matters to them. Because when you know what matters, it's really easy to make decisions. Most of the decisions are made for you based on those values. Um, so yeah, maybe let's dive into the story of like, you know, what made you want to get into footwear um, as a kid and, and sort of how did that journey go leading up to your time at Nike? And then, and then maybe in the second piece that we can talk about your time since Nike, what you've been getting into and, and just talk about footwear as a whole, because I think it is a very interesting uh, industry in terms of the way things are being done and the way shoes are made, which is not really, I mean, you even said it yourself, now that you have more natural feet, you can't even fit into most of your shoes. So I think we could talk about that. But yeah, let's start with like you as a kid, what made you want to go into design shoes? Um, and, uh, and I'll sprinkle in questions as we go, but uh, I'm sure it'll be a good sure. story. Yeah, I, I, from the first day of school, I remember going to kindergarten and the first thing I did was just look at everybody's shoes. 
<laughs> to me, wow. it, was, awesome. it was fascinating to see everybody put their spin on a pair of shoes or shoes I'd never seen before. And I don't know, I, to me, my first aspect of going and seeing a group of kids I'd never seen before wasn't let's go talk or play. It was, huh, what's he wearing? I don't, I don't so know why. you shoe head, basically. <laughs> I, I really believe I was. And my mom used to always tell me, you know, pick your head up when you're walking around. If we we're, you know, like out and about, and I would just be like, I'm just checking out shoes. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's but funny. It grew from that to drawing shoes all the time. I don't even know why I did that. It was just like, you know, in, in class you get an assignment done and I like to draw and I like shoes. So I was just putting two two together. Yep. And it led up into some art classes I took in high school where I finally had a teacher who said, You're always drawing shoes and doing art projects around shoes. You know you could maybe find a career in this. Didn't even think about it. So I called up Nike at age 15 or 16 because I grew up in a small town about 45 minutes north of where their world campus is. Right. So for, for me as a high school kid, at this point in life, I'm playing basketball for the last 10 years, like three hours a day. It was my whole life was just hooping and the shoes that encompassed it on court and off the court. And for me as a local kid to the Nike world, it was Honestly, they're a great marketing company. It doesn't matter that they sell shoes and clothes. They had me soaked in because of Michael Jordan and Bo Jackson, all these athletes that I'd see wearing this cool product. So I just constantly wanted it. And it tied into the time of thrift store shopping too, because then I was looking for specifically the cool stuff that I could resell for a lot of money. So mm -hmm. I had this time in high school where I was buying a lot of shoes, I was getting, I was working three jobs in high school so I could afford to buy more shoes. <laughs> but for me, it was buy four pairs so I could resell three of them, make a lot of profit, and then I can buy one more really cool pair for myself. But that just kept adding up and adding up. Right. Um, but from high school, I went to art classes to calling Nike and finding out that I had to get an industrial design degree to get in there as a footwear designer. No idea what that was. So as I got later into my high school career, I kind of did research and found out it was pretty much product design. They just want you to have an understanding of the whole cycle of sketch to how do you market that sketch and how do you get people an idea with building something in 3D. And you just kind of learn a whole process of building any product. So from high school, my love of shoes, I went and played college basketball for two years and then realized that wasn't going anywhere further. I knew at that point in my life, I had now seen better competition that I will not surpass. I want to focus on what's going to be important with what I'm going to do in my future. So I looked at um, the schools that Nike actually suggested that they recruited kids out of. And there's about eight schools on the list in America that I found, and none of which were affordable at all. Mm -hmm. So my parents weren't going to be able to afford it. I can afford it. And the thought of being in debt after getting out of school did not sound very good to me either. So I found one of the schools on Nike's list was San Jose State University. Um, and as a small town kid, it was great getting a culture shock moving to the Bay Area of California and seeing life outside of my small town. But what I realized when I got to school there, I wasn't the only kid who liked to draw shoes and had a passion for this. So I started meeting other kids at the time who had the same passions as me, wanted to go play ball. And I was making the like feeling of like, all right, I'm really finding something 
it seems more meaningful than playing hoops for three or four hours a day. Now I can do that like one hour a day, but focus on something that I feel like this is going to take me somewhere in life. Cool. Um, so I was a year or two into that program um, when somebody introduced me to Ray McClanahan. Oh, you, nice. Yeah, I know Ray. At, yeah. Uh, so Northwest he had, foot and ankle. He's a, he's a it, dude. I love that guy. Amazing guy. And so I was 20 years old when I got introduced to him, 19 or 20. And he had a small clinic in the town that I grew up in, the, where I live now in Longview, Washington. And he saw mostly older patients there. So I came in to meet him and he instantly got my background as an athlete and what I was doing and trying to become a footwear designer. And he just said, you should come to my other office in Portland. I see different kind of clientele, most, mostly athletes. I think you'd be more intrigued by these meetings. So I went to his spot and he shows me just his first day of work and how he analyzed a runner who came in with, it was probably a hip injury. And it wasn't like, let's look at how you're doing with your mechanics and all this. The first thing he did was let's take your shoes off and let's check out your wear pattern. Let's see what shoes you're wearing. And I was already like, oh, wow. Like a guy who's wearing like a doctor's coat, who's thinking like shoes like me, this is, this is my kind of guy right here. Cool. But what he did for me is what influences everything that I do right now. And it's weird because what I learned at 19, which was half my life ago now, um, I've kept with me very close in my lobe of thinking as I progressed as a footwear designer over the next 10, 15 years. And the more I tried to implicate all that I learned from him into some of the shoes that I was doing, the more I got pushback from the rest of the world. Mm. And so I spent a whole summer with Ray because from that first day, I could tell we were going to click. So I spent a summer with him just seeing clients and just taking notes and listening and seeing how he broke down athletes. And to me, it, it blew my mind because all I had known up to that point was buy the shoes that feel good, which to me mostly was just a pair of Nikes. Mm -hmm. And he was wearing Crocs and he had reasoning for it because he was telling me that he kind of broke down as a runner wearing the classic Asics and New Balance shoes and didn't think that at that age, I think he was like in his mid to late twenties that he should be breaking down the way he was. And I believe that he moved out to Kenya for a little bit and ran with some runners to see what was taking them to the next level where he couldn't get to and just saw the amount of barefoot training that they were doing that wasn't familiar to his training aspect at the time. <clears throat> so when he got a chance to come back home, get his feet strengthened up and he developed the toe spacer that I still wear all the time. Um, it made me realize that, yeah, Crocs are actually really comfy and they are more comfy than these Nikes that are squeezing my toes. And, and Ray opened up my eyes to just how dead my foot was. <laughs> Yeah, he was like, it's I was looking at it. When, it's things that when you realize, like, shit, my feet aren't doing anything they're supposed to be doing, and I never even knew. I didn't know as I've a physio. Never. I'm, I, I'm the same way. When I had this realization four or five years ago that, like, I was literally at a cottage walking on gravel barefoot. And I'm like, this feels extremely good, and I literally think it's my shoes that are messing my feet up. And from that point on, probably similar to you, it was like a big frame shift in how you think of footwear from the perspective of something that protects our foot but something that has somehow developed along its meandering path since we first made footwear to something that's literally damaging our foot 
instead of protecting it. And uh, yeah, so cool that you crossed yeah. paths with Ray. He showed me just his foot. And I see this just like strong skeletal structure. And I'm looking at my foot just like pinched <laughs> in and limp. And I was like, I couldn't even spread my toes out or wiggle individual toes. I couldn't do anything. And it really opened my eyes up thinking, I'm seeing these athletes who are a little older than me, you know, 20s and 30s to where I was at the time. And they're all coming in with just like a knee pain or a hip pain or a back pain. And so over that three-month course with Ray, I'd see him just correct their footwear, which would often be like splay out the toe box, shave down the heel so it would get them a little closer to a zero drop. And then these athletes would come back a week, two weeks, a month later, and they'd all just report, hey, that pain is gone. Hey, I've had that thing for three years, and it feels so much better. And I was just completely blown away that he was making these athletes feel better whether it's a shin splint or a back pain. And it was oftentimes just like, what shoes are you wearing? Yeah, these are terrible. <laughs> right. So it was from that point that I, I found that like, this is like a, this is my like calling in a sense. Like I've been studying these shoes for so long. I've been looking at the same stuff over and over, not at the time knowing this all just mass produced in a factory for one particular shape. Right. I, I kind of took that knowledge and, and still had it with me, but I had to go find internships with companies. And the first internship I found while still in school, right after Ray, was in um, Munich in Germany. And it gave me a chance to continue playing basketball for another season, which was amazing. And I worked for this company that was just like a street ball basketball company that was big out there, but not so big globally. It's called Kicks or K1X. Mm -hmm. And it got my feet wet. I just got to see like how the whole process of designing shoes. They only had one shoe designer in the company, but it's cool just to sit with one person and see his process. Um, but from there, I went and worked another uh, internship with Montreal. We got bought by Columbia, so it gave me a chance to go back to the Northwest. And I was in Seattle for half the time. Then when they got bought by Columbia, I would be in Beaverton. So then I was thinking, wow, how cool is this? I'm right here in Beaverton next to Nike working for the shoe company, getting like more salivated for the opportunity. Uh, go back to school, um, almost finishing. I'm in my last semester and I get an internship offer from Pony. I don't know if you remember that company. Yep. It's a, uh, yeah. It's like that big bigger. white kind of check mark. Yeah, the Chevron logo, exactly. They yeah. were trying to revive the company in like 2006 when I was getting out of school. So I got hired on over there after a three-month internship, which was amazing because it was in San Diego, um, downtown. It was, it was an amazing opportunity because a reviving company, they, they hired a former design director from Adidas. And the two people that were at Pony at the time weren't really footwear design backgrounds. They're more graphic guys. So it gave me a chance to sit with this guy. His name was Kyle Poley. And just he was designing NBA's, NBA athletes' shoes, like Kevin Garnett and Gilbert Arenas and a lot of the higher-end baseball cleats. That I got to learn a lot from this guy. And at Pony, it was baseball cleats, football cleats, basketball shoes, casual shoes, women's, children. And so I got to dive right into the opportunity of designing footwear on a price point level, kind of more affordable stuff, but really get my hands on every aspect of it, which was great for me to get into the industry and design all aspects of footwear 
but mm -hmm. they didn't have anybody else really doing a lot of the work. So I would do like the sales brochures to show the tech that was inside the shoe and I would design the apparel that would go with it. And it was an all-encompassing job that I learned so much from. Um, it lasted about three years. And the whole company folded again because it was about 2009, 2010. So there was a big recession. And right. no companies were buying into what they called a new brand, even though it was just an old brand trying to resurrect. We made some really cool stuff for cheap prices, but it was too hard at the time. Mm -hmm. So... Do you know what's going got, on Pony these days? Like, is that, is it still on, on the down low? Is it get, do you see that getting, cause I love this whole thing of bringing back brands that have this, you know, deeply, like when you said Pony, I don't know much about Pony, but I instantly saw the logo of my brain. Like it has this nostalgic familiarity where if someone mentions it, you're like, Oh shit, I remember them, you know? Uh -huh. And it's like, I feel like that's coming up to a revival where you can, revamp these brands into a new way of making footwear like i think that's such a cool thing of kind of bringing these awesome nostalgic brands back from the dead and and framing it in a new way um so do you know if pony's alive or is it still underground so that's part of my uh i guess understanding as i got into the industry of like how does this stuff all work when i found out the guy who had investors put money into bringing the company back when it didn't make it after three years, they end up selling, pretty much selling out. So they sold the licensing rights hmm. to every different country who wanted it. And they said, you can take that logo and do whatever you want with it. Hmm. As long as you give us like, you know, $100,000, you give us $50,000. <laughs> right. So by the end of my pony time, when I was there, I was seeing Chuck Taylor knockoffs from China. I was seeing... Nike shocks knockoffs from Brazil just with the pony logo on them. So they, people just completely, yeah. it's a disgusting industry in a lot of ways, but I think right now it's owned by some tiny agency in LA and they will make like a few of the retro products from the seventies, but That's they don't it. put much thought into it. Right. That was kind of another one of those eye opening things where I had Ray's thought process in the back of my head. And now I'm seeing this guy, at Pony trying to resurrect this brand, but not just bring the old Chevron back on the old shoes. It was making them modern with a little bit more of a twist, you know, different cushioning or lower to the ground. Mm -hmm. it, it got my eyes open to exactly what you're just saying. Like how cool is this to revive a brand, but do it for today's athlete versus, you know, the athletes they used to have were great. They had like Muhammad Ali and, Pele for a while they had wow. some amazing people so like the things that we could pull from for like natural athletes DNA who used to wear pony we told these really cool stories and now here's how it could fit for today but again nobody bought into it but that's another one of those nuggets that along with Ray's thought process I have had this in my head now and I'm starting to kind of just like get my own ideas of like how I would do this if I could mm -hmm. ever get more opportunities so three years after pony or uh, three months after Pony, I'm sitting in my apartment complex in San Diego trying to figure out what's my next plan. Mm -hmm. And so I took all my work from Pony, made myself a portfolio, and I sent it to Nike. Still thinking in the back of my head, I've been applying here for the last five, 10 years, never heard a word from them before. But it'd be cool to work there, so. I love the persistence, <laughs> dude. I, I love persistence. And I think my entire life has been 
you know, trickled by a journey of sending a shitload of emails with the faith that if something makes sense, the universe will have my back and I'll get a reply. And that's always <laughs> served me quite well. I'll be, it's usually far delayed from when the first email got sent, but like sometimes after a dozen email, people are like, Oh, okay, let's just answer this guy. And yeah, I commend you on the persistence. I like that. Oh, uh, it was a lot of persistence. It was a passion though. It was something I had deep inside me because I was still buying the product and spending money on it anyways. But now I'm like, and honestly, in my head at the time, I could say that I would have worked other jobs to be able to design shoes for Nike. Like I would have done it for free and I would have paid right. them to allow me to do that job is how badly I, I would have wanted to do that. Right. Um, so I got all my stuff together, sent it out to Nike, just a recruiter, crossed my fingers and I got a phone call saying, hey, we've got a position at Nike basketball we want you to interview for. So it's, oh, man. That's amazing. So I fly up to Beaverton, I get to show my whole portfolio to this just panel of like super nerve wracking. It's like 15 directors from Nike Whoa. all just like, so what are you going to like? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Prove to us you're the right person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I felt great about it. I got flew back home and then I got a call that said, you finished second and running to another guy. But you know, our, their feedback to me was instead of showing all your work from another company, show your work as if you did work at Nike. So just do yourself like a pretend project and then send it back to the recruiter. And if it looks really good, we'll shop it around to other parts of Nike and see if people are interested. Cool. So I spent about a month uh, just on my floor and made myself a project for a Nike basketball shoe, sent it to that recruiter. Um, never heard anything back for the next three to six months. So. I had to kind of give up on that idea and I took a job in LA area. So San Diego to LA was like a two hour drive. But the crazy thing at that point in our lives, I had just met my wife uh, in San Diego and we had been dating for six months or so. And then Pony lets me go. Um, I'm not hearing back from Nike and then I get this job opportunity in LA for this company that did uh, shoes that you'd get at Payless, like Shaquille O'Neal's $20 shoe that he had at the end of his career. Um, stuff I did not want to do at all. But this recruiter reached out to me, offered me a signing bonus, which I had never heard of in the footwear design world, hmm. to just start. And the money was ridiculous and I couldn't say no to it. And it, it was up in Bel Air, California, which is super expensive. And I couldn't live anywhere near there. So I, the money was good enough to just get a nice place on the beach in Santa Monica, which was like a couple miles away, but still taking me about 45 minutes to drive into work. So I started getting this disgust for a waste of time that it was just to get to this stupid job that I don't want to do, but it pays well. So I'm getting into this funk of like, all right, okay, I'm going to move to this place on my own. And I asked my girlfriend at the time, are you interested in moving up here? And she said, yeah, my family's, you know, closer to that area. If you want to move in together, let's, let's try this out. Cool. We move in together for, she, I've been in this job now for three months and she moves in and we're one week into this situation where we're living together. <clears throat> and I'm at work in my office and I get a phone call from Jordan brand completely out of the blue. Cool. And they said, hey, we uh, have two designers that are going to be leaving this month. We need someone new 
and you're at the top of our list. Can you start? I said, I'll put in my two week notice right now. And he said, no, no, no. I need you to start tomorrow. Oh, shit. I was like, oh, no, no. I was like, I don't live up in the Portland area. I'm in Southern California working another job, but I want this job really bad. This is like my dream position. So honest to God, this recruiter from Nike says, well, if you can't start tomorrow, I've got a list of like 30 guys. I'll just go to the next guy. Okay? No way. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. We can figure this out. And I go, okay, let's see. It's a Wednesday. It's the end of the day. So right now there's only two days left in the week. I go, instead of starting tomorrow, give me Friday off too. I'll start Monday. <sighs> Let me call my superiors. I'll get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> I get a call back. He says, all right, that's the best we can do. If you can start Monday, we'll, we'll take it. And so let alone that disgusting start to my Nike career, it was also, you get a, a conversation with a girlfriend go, by the way. <laughs> That's next. <laughs> the guy offers me a job, which is called a temporary workers position. And it was only a three month position. So basically they put you on trial and if they don't like you, they can get rid of you without having to sign you on. So I right. get this like, and I knew that was my opportunity to get a foot in the door and show them what I could do and the way I thought. And I knew it was going to be my chance that I needed. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, a week into living with my girlfriend, I come home and say, Hey, I'm, Sorry, I just took the opportunity of a lifetime for myself. I'm probably going to be moving up to the Northwest. I got to start packing boxes like right now. <laughs> and she's just like, she just started a job that week, got moved back up there to be by her family. And then I give her this and she instantly just said, well, do you want me to help? You want me to come with you? And I was like, if you would want to come to a place you've never been, yeah, come with me. And she was just all in for it. So I knew at that time I had someone That's who was amazing. definitely invested with me and yeah. we've got two kids now and we're happy, super happy. So it worked out, but it was disgustingly stressful because I didn't no have shit. an apartment in Beaverton either. So I had to move back up to my brother's house. I lived, we lived on a mattress in my brother's house where I grew up 45 minutes hour away. So my first month at Nike had to make this 50 mile commute to work and then back. I was 100 miles driving a day for the first Probably month. Probably nicer which, than LA though, let's be real. Yeah, I mean, it was actually the same amount of time in the car, but at least I was driving and not stopping and going and honking right. at somebody constantly. Right. Um, yeah, so we got into Nike and it was a three month situation that it wasn't really what I had hoped for, but mm -hmm. it was okay, I see what I need to do here. I just need to help out. And honestly, there was, it was weird to me because I just came from minus the LA company. Cause that was a weird situation. It was a licensing company where it was just doing whatever project came on my desk, which I didn't care for. But at Pony, we had a team by the time the whole thing got shut down, we had a team of five footwear designers, two graphic designers, um, I, what seemed like a smaller team to get the amount of work done that we were doing. So when I got to Jordan brand in my mind, I thought this company makes way more money, puts out way more different shoes. They must have a huge team of people here. It was smaller than where I left pony. There was four footwear oh. designers, no graphic designers, no materials, people, no color people, which was good because in my background, I had known all aspects of those categories from what I was doing. So 
I kind of was able to come in and just say, well, can I help you finish color on this? Can I help you put materials to this? And they saw me as just like a utility guy. I think that I could help anybody yeah. else. So I think I was trying to help prove myself that I'm valuable to this company. Yep. I'll do whatever it takes to be a part of this. So I went from a three month contract to, you know what, we're going to sign you on for three more months and see how it goes. Uh, then it went <laughs> three more months, did it again. And then it was month to month. And they wouldn't tell me until the last day of these contracts, whether I was going to have a job the following Monday, it was so stressful. And it was for the last three months, it was month to month of, okay, we'll do it one more time. Okay. We'll do it one more time. And then it had been a full year and they said, well, we can't assign you on as a contractor anymore with these temporary work positions because that's how they're skating around paying me full time with benefits essentially right. too. Yep. So after a full year of doing that, they're like, all right, we'll, we'll sign you on kind of reluctantly. I was like, oh, good. <laughs> reluctantly, <laughs> so like you just did yeah. a year of your life to them. Come on, Nike. I, know. I guess that's what happened yeah. when, like when so many people are looking, like it, it seems like designing footwear for Nike or especially Jordan brand would be sort of the pinnacle of what most designers would feel in the footwear world. So when you have yeah. people queued up, it's supply and demand, right? If, if you have people queued up to do that job, then you can essentially do as much bullshit as you want and there'll still be people lined up. So it's very interesting from an inside perspective that they do that. But um, anyway, yeah. And, so, so and, they, and month, they know it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, yeah. Know they know that they do that. Uh, it goes month to month. I get signed on full time. So Years two, three, and four in that brand was just diarrhea design barf of, hey, the Foot Locker guys want another shoe that looks like a Jordan 3. If you can just like change the materials and move the lines a little bit so it doesn't look just like that. Hmm. Okay, I mean, I can finish that for you in like 10 minutes, but can I do some more exploring for you and show you some other things? And lots of times people wouldn't stop me so I would get my work done and then I'd just like go a bit further because I was not happy just doing these simple regurgitated projects for a while. Right. And people started seeing what was going on, but then I'd get a new boss. And in the six years I worked there, I had six different bosses. Every year it changed. Wow. And that's also the corporate structure of how that place works because Jordan Brand shares a campus with Nike. So a lot of the times a Nike executive will come over to Jordan brand. They'll have their own view and perspective, how they think success will go or how we should run performance or how we should push lifestyle, whatever that person's prerogative was. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to take all the work that you'd done, which we would work 18 months behind. So any shoe that you see in store now, we started 18 months before that, as far as sketching and thinking wow. and how we're going to finish this project. So when a new boss would come in every year, just about, you would have them reassess all the work that you had done for the last 16 months. And lots of times it would be like, well, I'm not really into that direction. I'm not into that style. Let's change this. Let's change this. And you'd already be into the third or fourth round of sampling with the factory where you've refined all the details and then you just start over because it's another person's opinion. Wow. But that's the disgusting part about that whole place is how many different opinions you have to please to get a project done. So hmm. even though I'm hired on as the designer or even, you know, I'm educated in this background of what, what design could, should be let the marketing guys help dictate how marketing goes. Let, you know, the materials people dictate how materials go. Like, in my mind, like people kind of should stay in their lanes because that's why we got hired here. But 
oftentimes because I'm the guy who changes the look of it, I'm the guy who also has to take on this person's opinion. Oh, you know what? I think Foot Locker would buy a little bit more if you kind of did this like this. Okay, so you kind of move your sketch around. Then someone else can come into your ear and say, well, my boss was thinking we weren't going to go that direction. If you could kind of do uh, uh, And so it was a constant. Oh, man, too many. And you just have meeting after meeting about opinions. And it, it was just a difference of opinions. And I started to kind of realize that it didn't matter what my opinion was because I was like number five on the list of rankings of who got to make a decision. If I said, this is what I think we should do, and the whole group would check off on an initial design concept, it didn't really matter after that point because a marketing guy would change it, a development guy who's connected to the factory could say, ah, that's not gonna work, let's just change it at the factory level when it's there. I had so many levels of people where, when I actually saw my product get to market or show up at a shoe store, it was just like, what happened? And why this change? And why is this not functioning the way we talk? But you're so far past it that it had been 18 right. months when you were working that you're already like looking, oh, I'm on to the next project, not thinking about it. But mm. yeah, I got to this point where I'm like year four into this Nike situation and still like, eh. right. <laughs> and I start doing more of what I felt in my heart was the right thing to do with designing footwear that was going to help athletes. And I finally got a boss that I could connect with and he saw what I was doing more with my time at work. Cause honestly, a lot of the guys would just know the process of how it worked there, get their work done and just chill out for the next however many hours. I didn't have that mentality to just sit there and let time go by just so I could go home. I would just put more pen to paper and try to solve more problems, which is why I'm hired to be there. So in my mind, this is like, this is really what I should be doing. Right. And when I finally had a boss who saw some of that thinking, he's just like, this stuff doesn't belong here, Jordan Brand. Do you know that? Like, this isn't what they're looking for here. Right. Like, this place thrives on reproducing the old DNA that everybody wants from Jordan's heyday, whether it's the retro product or the stuff that looks like it. Like, you're trying, usually like, you're going you're going into the space where Nike innovation should be going. So he suggested that I just go talk with somebody in Nike's innovation kitchen and just show them some of my portfolio sketchbooks that I've been working on. And I show it to this director of footwear innovation. His name was Jay Mester. He's the one that Nike is responsible for designing or inventing Flywire for Nike. So he got this position of running the innovation kitchen when I was there. And I show him all this thinking and he's like, I want you to show all this stuff to a group of people tomorrow. Could you do that for me? Just kind of leaves it at that. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. All right. He's like, I'll see you here tomorrow at 9am. I come in and this whole room is filled and he introduces them as this is the lead uh, biomechanist. This is the lead scientist uh, for the Nike sports research lab. This is the director of, I had this whole team of people in front of me. He's like, just kind of the way you went through it with me, you know, give them a little presentation about, you know, what you're thinking and what you're doing over at Jordan Brand. So I was like, well, after my work gets done, I kind of more think along these lines. Show them what I'm thinking, why I'm doing it, how I think it could benefit athletes. And I guess get grilled with all these questions of like, 
why would you want to take the heel out of the shoe? I'm like, well, because like our bodies are kind of designed that way and we don't need that much cushioning. So I was like, when I answered all these questions that came at me, it was about an hour and a half grilling session. Plus you had all and, the raised stuff, right? Like I'm sure that permeated a lot of your way of thinking. And unfortunately that is that the exact stuff you probably learned from Ray, those principles are exactly what needs to be embedded in footwear for us to align with a human functioning shoe and performance. But it's probably the furthest thing from what these people have been exposed to, even biomechanists. Like I went to a footwear biomechanics symposium, the summit, the global summit. I was walking around barefoot. I looked like a leper compared to everyone else. Everyone's wearing like dress shoes that are destroying their feet. And these are supposedly the top scientists when it comes to forward biomechanics. So it's so ironic how little these people know in terms of practical, real knowledge when they're in their bubble of science and research. Isn't so it doesn't it crazy? surprise me that it fell on deaf ears or people were like surprised. It's so ridiculous, man. So Yeah. No, they, they had had Ray come into Nike's campus, into the innovation kitchen. And he's like, they call on him to verify, like... I'll just give an example story without naming an athlete's name. But if an athlete comes in with their dad or mom and says, you know what, these shoes aren't working right now. We need to figure something out for my daughter or my son because they're trying to run at the Olympics or whatever they're doing. They'd say, Ray, can you come in and help us kind of make understanding of what's supposed to happen here? And Ray would come in and just give his honest two cents of, you should get your athlete more in this position and lower the ground and split their toes out. And they'd be like, okay, thanks for your input. Okay. You know, let's actually look back at the shoes and they would just like completely like, eh. and so, yeah. And it's funny. I'd say to Ray, I'd just be like, so you, you give a lot of input to them that should help them, but they never really utilize it. Do they? He's like, no, but I always am hopeful. So he always does it. And when I started reiterating the same things, but not from a podiatrist's point of view, but from a footwear designer's point of view, I think that's what mm -hmm. threw them off guard because that wasn't the perspective they had ever heard before. So this hour and a half long meeting session gets over with and Jig just kind of brings me back out to the main floor and just wipes his hand across this desk that's at the front of the room, which is right next to Tinker Hatfield, Eric Avar, Aaron Cooper, the three guys that I grew up admiring because they're like the footwear design legends that made all the shoes that I loved as a kid, the, mm -hmm. all the Air Maxes, all the Air Jordans, all that stuff. They kind of retired to this Nike innovation section where they get to help lead the projects, but more of the aesthetic of the projects. They kind of will hand off a sketch of what they think it should look like because some tech guy have dropped off a new innovation on their desk and said, Hey, can we build something that looks cool around this new, air bubble or whatever it is right so jay clears off this desk and says this is your new desk when you're Sweet. not busy at jordan brand come over here and start doing whatever you want to do you don't have That's any awesome. assignments but let me sit you down so then he starts showing me everything that they're going to work on or that they're focusing on and they have a 10-year outlook of what they're focusing to get after hmm. and there's a lot of really interesting concepts that they put up on the board that started gravitating towards me that he would just say, you know, like find a category, find a picture, find a piece of this pie that we're sort of putting out in the sky and see if you want to build towards it. So naturally I just like found this idea of like someone running barefoot and saying I could build something around this. I think it's going to help athletes. So I had this 
golden ticket opportunity, which even at Jordan Brand with other footwear designers I was working with, they were kind of, I think, a little bit jealous that I was able to, you couldn't even get into the innovation kitchen as an employee who worked there. You had to have a special swipe card to get into this area that was off access. No one had access to it, even as an employee, unless you were permission to go in there. Right. And so now I had people who were making shoes on the spot and I could just drop a sketch, walk up to that person, introduce myself and say, Hey, how could you help me build this? Or can you build this for me? And so I started seeing the process of what a few of the people were doing down there and growing up with my industrial design background, where we built a lot of our projects in a wood shop, but it wasn't with wood. It would be with like, harder foam so you can just sand things quicker and shape things quicker but we were using all the tools that you would in a wood shop mm -hmm. well i saw a lot of the same tools were going on in the nike innovation kitchen where it's just like sanding and shaping pieces until you get the size and shape that you want and then you're either stitching it you're gluing it or a combination of both of those things so i started to quickly understand that it wasn't rocket science putting these shoes together because the four previous years I had with Jordan Brand and all the years I had had with other companies before that, if you go to a shoe factory to understand how the process is working to make your design come to life, you're not actually getting in the trenches and seeing the disgusting details that go into making this cast of a glued up shape of a foot come together. You sit in the office and they kind of hand you a piece of paper and say, how would you like to change your design? And you mark something and then they go away and then they come back and right. it's like it's all a, behind closed doors. Yeah, exactly. So now in the innovation kitchen, I had this perspective of these shoes are just, that's all the glue you use is just that. And you do, Oh, this isn't so difficult really. Right. So I kind of then said, I don't really need the help of you guys, but thanks for showing me how you do this. If it's okay, I can use this stuff. <laughs> I'm going to just start doing this. <clears throat> so I make, I make a pair of just shoes for myself that I found amazing because they fit my foot and I'm still wearing raised toe spacers um, after work um, at this time period. But I, I was at this weird juncture at Jordan brand where I was wearing my Jordan shoes into work because I had already had them as a collector prior to that. So I was wearing all my old shoes work and people love seeing them, but then I would get to my desk and I'd take my shoes off because they're hot and clunky and I don't need to wear them if I'm just at a computer all day. But then people come over to my desk and say, well, you got your shoes off, you know, your feet stink or whatever. And it's like, what do I got to wear these hot, sweaty shoes all day for if I'm sitting at a computer? And then people start scratching their heads like, yeah, I'm going to take my shoes off too. Oh, so I started creating this little bit of a <laughs> That's culture. And I started wearing, so at the time, well, they still do, they own Converse. So we got really cheap discounts on Chuck Taylors and I could beat a pair of Chuck Taylors up and not worry about spending $125 on the pair of shoes because you can get them for 10 or 20 bucks at these outlet stores. So I started wearing Chuck Taylors into work all the time. And it was also because I have a pretty slim, narrow foot and the canvas on those shoes can, I can actually like put a shoe stretcher in there and stretch the toe box out a little bit. And they wear out where they wear to my foot pattern quicker than, you know, a stiff leather basketball shoe would. Yep. So I started wearing Chucks all the time into work. And then people would call me out with like, why are you wearing Chuck Taylor's instead of Jordan's anymore? I'm just like, they're way more comfortable and they breathe. And uh, there's like no pleasing the people that you work with. So I'm at this time where, okay, I'm going to make a pair of custom shoes for myself while I had this opportunity in the innovation kitchen, wear them in the office 
And then people are like, oh, where'd you get those? Or how'd you do that? And it starts getting more conversations going. Um, the custom pair of shoes that I made um, that fit like a glove for me, the guy that I reported to in the Innovation Kitchen, Jay, I asked him to try them on to see what his opinion was. And even though they were made specifically for my foot, I asked him what size he wore. We both wore like a men's size 12. I said, just see how this feels. He put it on, walked up and down the hallway in the innovation kitchen. Mind you, this is a guy who's been working at Nike for 20 plus years and has seen every shoe in the world come through there. And he says to me, this is the most comfortable shoe I've ever worn. <laughs> and I'm just That's like, <laughs> yeah, whoa, that was a big nugget. You just kind of dropped right there. And, you know, he says it with a laugh, but I can see the confident smile of like, you just put this together, like, you know, the last few days. <laughs> Huh. And I was like, yeah, this is all the shoe needs to be. So I'm feeling pretty confident now. I'm thinking I've got the eyes and attention of what I think we should be doing for athletes a little bit more because the other great part about being in the innovation kitchen was you could see the behind the scenes of world-class athletes and what was going on about how they were addressing footwear problems. So at that time that I was in there, they had Tiger Woods who had a foot problem. So they're trying to <laughs> it's almost like putting an orthotic but they would make a thicker orthotic and they would add more carbon fiber um you'd see lebron think, it's funny because they always think more right it's like it's i always tell people health is by subtraction right natural function is by subtraction take away the shit that shouldn't be in there and then your body knows exactly what to do to self-organize but the mindset is always i mean I suppose if you design products, your mindset is this problem can be solved with a new product or a different product. Um, but it's, I, I feel like the simplicity route, the less is more route is not entertained nearly enough because I found that to be the truth of, of what typically we need when there's problems is just like, take things away, let the body figure it out. So interesting uh -huh. that they took that approach. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Uh, another funny part was in that, in the um, presentation I did, that lasted an hour and a half for the innovation kitchen. One of my last slides that I showed was a picture of LeBron's foot. And I found, I found it on Google, but it was a picture of him just like at the beach. And he has his pinky toe crossed on top and his yep. like big toe was like gnarled in. Right. And that's him just casually walking around barefoot. And I showed that to the team at Nike there. <laughs> and I said, this is your $100 million man. Look at his feet. They're jacked up. They're jacked up because of the shoes he wears, the shoes you guys are forcing him into. I wow. think we can make LeBron faster, stronger, more efficient. He could cut with more precision and more confidence. So There's like so many things. And I started drawing up some sketches of ways to solve some of this, but there was no going back. It's like you can't turn backwards when every day is crucial for that athlete's practicing, for his games, for the way he trains, and for every meeting he's got to go to. So there's no – reversal of what LeBron's foot position was in. So I think it's the reason of why it's additive and not subtractive. Like we can fix his problem if we just put a little more carbon fiber over here and we reinforce it here. The shoes he would wear on court were nothing like the shoes you can buy in store. Aesthetically, they look the same. So you think as a consumer, you're getting the same thing. His shoes were so jacked up like cement bricks. Like it's no wonder he has problems because they keep, giving him more and more crap under his foot that's softening right. the blow for every time. I mean, that's a lot of force moving up and down the court. 
But yeah. it was Tiger, it was LeBron, it was Serena Williams, it was all these major athletes. And they had this whole shoe show that you would see the castings of all these athletes' feet. And so you can see just 50 of the most world-class athletes' bare feet right in front of you because they were one-to-one. I think they had 3D print them just so they had them. Every so single, cool. Every single one of those athletes' feet are just like pointed, <laughs> narrow, jacked up. And it, it made me really like step back and realize this is not good because this is our best athletes in the world and none of them have healthy feet. Right. And when wow. I kind of, so it seems so obvious <laughs> you would think, right. But they just can, they have the trainers and the people around them that can, I don't know, get them going every day enough to where they can overcome what's going on. But I know that they're having problems because so many athletes would come in and there'd be examples where I had seen it come from Ray, where Ray will feed them some information about an athlete who is struggling. And the athlete will step away from the meeting and just be like, I don't want to be with Nike anymore because this isn't helping me as an athlete. I just saw myself barefoot in slow motion in this Nike sports research lab. And I realized that I'm more efficient as an athlete running barefoot, not to say that you can go barefoot and go play a football game or a basketball game, right. but you start to teach these athletes what's going on, which in my mind is the beautiful science that Nike can do where they can, they're not necessarily pulling the wool over your eyes. It's just that nobody knows any better in my opinion, where they can mm. just show you, Hey, you're going to do this cut in slow motion and look how fast you're going to be going this way in our new blah, blah, blah product. But when you really take an athlete and look at them move without the product, and then some of them get this aha moment of, that shoe actually isn't helping me. It's hindering me. <laughs> yeah, they're not dumb, right? <laughs> it's like, it's so, it's so friggin' crazy that we do this to the, at the highest level. And, you know, back to your thing about how they can overcome it. I, I really think that people are, I mean, Le- LeBron is a genetic freak that has yeah. gifts that he received by being a young athlete, developing this robust foundation for the rest of his athletic life. But you might have a really good bank account of, of health, because you developed it when you were young and you have amazing genetics, but you're still spending from that bank account every day you spend moving poorly. And there is, there's not an infinite resource there. It's finite. Like some people spend it slower. Some people spend it at a much more, let's say a higher interest rate. If you move poorly, you're spending your health bank account at a much higher interest rate. This is a concept from Austin Einhorn who it's called movement or um, movement banking. And so eventually it catches up. And it might not be even in their athletic career, but it might be, I can't walk like a normal human after I'm done playing basketball. And I think that should matter just as much to the athlete if they're making a valuable trade-off. I'm like, are these shoes, which are making me a shitload of money by wearing them, actually doing good for my feet? Because I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Like, what if LeBron James said, listen, Nike, I'm tired of this shit. I want shoes that don't mess my feet up. Can you make me a shoe that makes me a better athlete and makes my feet have their health restored you know you've done the damage it's up to you to do <laughs> to make it right uh-huh. and it's just it's so odd that companies aren't willing to see that perspective and to and i'm not saying they have to go complete pivot but like start going in the right direction because yeah. by adding yeah. more you're you're literally just harming this athlete more and more and it's it's kind of heartbreaking because there's a conflict of of financials right this company's paying you a lot of money and they have billions of dollars in research you would assume that they have the best research to guide the best product development. But if they're going with this old template 
that is very rigid and closed-minded to even entertaining other things. And especially, like you said before, all the different layers. It's like, you might start with something great, but then the marketing people change it, then the manufacturing changes it, and then you have something come out on the other side that's like, that doesn't even look like what, I, what we were talking about. And it's like, uh-huh. something needs to the, happen. There's a big um, mishandling of the information that an athlete will bring to a company like Nike, where honestly, I... I after I was seated with this information with Ray and I had it kind of planted in my head about how I wanted to design product someday, mm-hmm. I always thought by the time I got to Nike, this is the place that would finally listen to me because they're the voice of the real athlete. They have the best athletes in the world. Right. They're not thinking like this. So I think this is going to be eye-opening and they're going to love it. So I finally get to the Innovation Kitchen and I get to show them this thinking. And I even have the director of all this you know, telling me that this is one of the most comfortable shoes he's ever worn. I'm on a high cloud right now thinking I'm going to finally, and it wasn't even about me. That's the funny, like I, I didn't care. I care less if my name was ever known about any of this stuff. It was that I was going to be able to help athletes in a new way and not hurt them. Because like you were just saying, you can see the basketball players walking the sidelines who are coaches now, and they're barely walking without hunched over and just like, and I, I've met with these guys and it's usually if they made it through their career, okay, it's right after post-career that they go downhill quick and it's their feet. And I think the other big situation I had was where I actually got to meet with an athlete where, okay, now I've had my innovation kitchen experience. In a sense, I feel like I have a little more, I'll just say respect about what I'm doing within the Jordan brand category now. So they're like, oh, you work over there and you can make stuff. Okay, well, we're gonna have you come and meet with one of our athletes. And he was playing in the, he still plays professionally. So this is like five years ago, but he was coming into the league when I had this meeting and he was 19 or 20 years old. And he was just complaining about how the shoes weren't working for him. And his mom and dad were with him and they didn't know how to like talk about the whole situation. So the marketing guys run the whole conversation. They're like, we'll get the best shoes for you. Just tell us like what colors you want and we'll, we'll make it happen. And so they're taking all their notes and the meeting is done. The meeting is done. They had me come to the meeting, but I get no time to really discuss much. So the meeting's over and I go right up to the athlete and his parents. And I said, Hey, do you mind if you take your shoes and socks off? And I get the sure. Why? Well, I'm, I'm a footwear designer. I just kind of want to see like what's going on here. And his toes were completely you know, curbed up and stuck like this. Yeah. And I said, what happened? And, you know, he pulled me aside because he didn't want his mom to hear, but he said like, you know, we were too poor growing up. So I was always wearing shoes that were way too small to me for me. So as I grew up, my shoe, my toes were always jammed in the front of the shoe. When I could finally afford to get shoes that fit me, he said, my toes didn't straighten back out. They kind of stayed like that. So, mm-hmm. I remember, oh, yeah, so the reason I even asked him, I was like, you said that you wear a size 15, but you want us to make you size 17s. And, you know, the marketing guys are like, that's fine. Whatever you want, that's fine. If that makes you happy, we'll do that. (laughs) I want to get to the, the, yeah, why? So when I saw that, and he's like, so the reason I asked for two sizes bigger is because my, you know, when my knuckles are pointing up, it doesn't fit in the size 15 that I wear. So I have to order two sizes bigger just so that – Never told anybody about it. And once I saw that, I was just like, wanted to put a red flag with like, uh, his agent was <laughs> another NBA player who played with Michael Jordan. So I was able to go talk with him and say, hey, 
I just talked to your client and he's 19, 20 years old. I want to help him. I'm not a podiatrist. I'm a footwear designer, but I'd like you to be in contact with Ray. Here's his contact information. You need to get his feet back to normal. You need to get his, like, we got to get you on some sort of program that's not going to accentuate more of what's going on, but hopefully eventually. And it was, uh, yeah, we don't really, no thanks. And like, you won't even allow me to give you the information to help your client. Right. That's crazy. Fr frustration, really frustrating. And without naming the name, that client ends up blowing a knee out and a ankle out. And he took the last two or three years out of the NBA because of injuries. And I didn't surprise me really at all. Cause he didn't have any foundation to be walking. I like, if you're not using your big toe as an athlete, when you're planting and jumping and you're just like crazy to me that he even made it to that level, but it's the right. back to that like DNA genetics. And if you build a strong foundation and base and you have the hips and the quads to support everything, you're going to be fine until those feet one day don't allow something to work in my opinion. Yeah. So and it's crazy that we wait for it to get to that point to even yeah. acknowledge it. And I, it's so shocking that, you know, the agent is supposed to be acting in the best interest of the client. Like, the fact that it wouldn't even be entertained, it's like, what? That's so crazy. I just find there's so much. I, I really feel for athletes because they are playing their sport, training every day, working their ass off, um, trying, you know, they're, and the sad reality is that even at the upper level uh, echelon of strength conditioning coaches, there is a dogmatic mentality that what has worked in the past is still what works the best. And there's a re reluctance to really like, think outside the box, like think external to what you, you already know, which is uncomfortable and which feels weird because you're, you're leaning into the unknown. But also it's like, if you have a base knowledge of physiology, I think everyone should know that your toes aren't supposed to be like that, right? <laughs> toes should be like, it's good to know what a baseline natural human body looks like so that you have a standard, right, to compare against. And the fact that that's not a red flag and that these athletes essentially get brought around by, by you know, the, the convincing speakers, right? The rhetoricians, I call them, like the marketers. They'll sell you, they'll, they'll usher you, they'll treat you well, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, like that athlete's body is literally their tool that they use to make money. And if that's yeah. not being paid attention to, or if the clothing that they're being given by companies through sponsorships are actually hindering the ability for them to perform as an athlete, not only during their sport, but long-term as a human, um, it really sucks that there's not an awareness out there that athletes should have the power to just be like, no, I want shoes shaped like my fucking feet. Like it's not too much to ask for. Like it's so, it's very frustrating to me because the right information never reaches the right person. And so people basically assume that that is normal. My body getting messed up is just normal as a basketball player. When in reality, it's, it's simply a result of your environment and the clothing you wear. Yeah. And if you think about the athletes that would come into Nike, <clears throat> I'll put myself in the same position. We wore Nikes as, you know, children through our teenage years. So by the time you're into your adulthood and you come in and say, my foot's now shaped like this versus this, they say, we need to build around that foot. There's our shape. That's what you're supposed to be wearing. And it was a lot of, a lot of eye-opening stuff in those months I got to work in the innovation kitchen because even though the information was right in front of these people, um and they understood it and it made sense it would still come back to 
we need to focus on what's going to make money though. And although that, right. that works for your foot or that might work for that person's foot, that's not really a scalable part of this business. And when I understood that, it was a bit of a, uh, okay, I'm starting to understand a little bit more how this works and what you guys are focusing on. Because if you're not putting effort into helping athletes be better athletes, then this is really a money hungry company. And there's one other, there's two situations that came right after this. That was the, okay, this is definitely, I'm, I'm done here. One of them was they put us every footwear designer and graphic designer and any person who had designer in their category is probably 250 people on Nike's campus who do just design work. And they put this in this big auditorium and they have Mark Parker, CEO come give us this hoorah message about, you know, the next year that's coming up. We had a great year, but here's what's coming. And when he said, we're going to focus on not being a $30 billion brand, our new focus is being a $60 billion brand. And the whole room just erupts in, yeah, yeah, we're good. Yeah. I think I was the only person in that room who just like looked left and right. And I saw my friends and colleagues and I'm like, all he just said was, we're going to try to work you twice as much to sell twice as much as stuff. And the investors are going to make more money. They didn't say they're going to give us a raise. They just said, here's our goals. We're going to try to make twice as much money. What do you guys think about that? And I, I, I found myself to be like a lone wolf in this room of everybody cheering for the situation because I was the Nike fanboy who would have been happy at any meeting I was at because I was in this cult that I loved but when you see how this cult is ran and what it's doing. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. very telling. Yeah. So that was... I, I feel like Phil and Bill would be so fucking pissed of what material, like, like if reading shoe dog is any metric as to like what their, their initial intentions were and what their goals were. I really feel like this is a, it's almost like a beast captures companies as That's they're a, doing great yes. things. And the, the money hungry beast of corporate promises where investors are, our allegiance to investors is the only stakeholder that matters. And it's so weird the way that we've just swung that direction, like with full force and don't seem to, and seem to have tunnel vision that that is only what matters because all of the other stakeholders, the community, the planet, the athletes, the people who work there literally get thrown by the wayside to make rich people more rich. And it's such, uh -huh. a, it's such a backwards way of thinking about how to run a company or how to build a community. And I think it's losing some people's faith or allegiance to the Nike brand um, because it's just not, the value set is, not, is no longer aligning with what the initial value set was, which was make great products that help people be better athletes or make uh, the athlete label more accessible to more people. And it really... You know, this is the, I got invited to Nike campus and I was a little bit worried when I did because I was like, I had done a couple posts on social media that maybe weren't very kind to Nike and just trying to kind of nudge like, okay, let's, let's call people out for, let's call it like it is, right? And not, and not be afraid. And so I was like, am I just going to go there and get beaten up by a squad of lawyers? And like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know about this. Anyway, I went and it was great. I didn't sign the NDA, so I didn't get to go into the innovation kitchen because I was like, if I sign this, I will never be allowed to make shoes ever again, basically, if I want to. Um, and that was hard because I was like, I want to see all the cool shit, but I also want to not be shackled by this. So I went, I got through the campus. It's a crazy place. It's so cool. Um, but I think it was Toby Hatfield that I spoke to. I spoke with the free team. 
uh-huh. lunch and I got the exact same thing. It was like the intention was great. We had this mission to create something that allows more natural foot function that allows people to feel like they're running on grass barefoot. And as it goes through every incremental filter of marketing, development, manufacturing, all this kind of stuff, it, the essence literally gets chipped away until you're left with something that is nothing like the intention. And it was basically like, unless the market, the marketing people make final decisions and they know nothing about function, they're just trying to sell what sells. And it seems like that was just the, the behemoth machine that things go through when a company gets that big, that prevents true innovation, true disruptive or, or functional innovation from happening is because they don't want to break what they feel is working well because they're not paying attention to all the bad stuff that's coming from the way they're doing things. They're just seeing the money because it makes a lot of money, right? Make something new, sell it to people, makes billions of dollars. It's like, why would we, why would we change what's working really well if your only metric is making money? Right. And And so, yeah, so that (laughs) meeting, good for you for like sticking to your guns. Once again, strong value set. I think it's so refreshing Uh to hear from. And that was probably, that probably would have made you feel really weird. (laughs) It did. I had a lot of respect for Toby, too, because I knew what he was doing. I knew the amount of work that went into free, and I got to talk with him about all that stuff, too. And I got so excited when I saw those kinds of studies and initial concepts that were going into that. Mm-hmm. That got my juices flowing. But then I'm like, but here's what released to the public what happened. <laughs> right. yeah. And then you see that kind of like, well, yeah. And I go, yeah, that's, that's how it is at Jordan Brand. Like, it doesn't matter what I say. Unfortunately, marketing and development get the last say in what a product is going to look or function like I'm right. just the guy who says how it should kind of look even though yeah. I have more knowledge about how it should function that's not my expertise so we'll take it from here thank you is usually how you get it right and so I, I know the guys in the innovation kitchen get it but they also get it where they're experts at I'll do my part and I know where it goes from here and that's how the business works. It's a beast. You're right. And it's an unfortunate beast. (laughs) I feel like there's, and I feel like there's an opportunity for people to just who want to jump off the beast, but don't see any safety in everything that they can land on. And I feel feel like there's a community of people that are like, we need to do things different, but no one's listening to us. And like, if we can put that together somehow in future with developing truly functional footwear that gives people value and cares about the performance of the body instead of just the profits. Like, I feel like there's a bunch of isolated pockets of people that would love that. And it just, you know, hopefully in future, we can make something happen at TFC that aligns that really without any financial motive at all. Like as long as we don't lose money and bankrupt our entire company, we just want to make great shoes that gives people value and, and really create an environment that allows true innovation to flourish where like the most creative out of the box shit can actually be made and looked at just as objectively as if something conventional was made. Like whatever is best, the utility and function of the shoe is the only metric that matters because if you make great shit, people are going to buy it. Um, and it's, but it's so not, refreshing to you hear have to you think say function that. first. So refreshing yeah. to hear somebody else say that because I don't have these conversations with anybody. But I think what you just said all the time, and it it should happen. And that's that's my goal in life right now is honestly that. And I, I listened to your last podcast with uh, Ultra uh, yeah. Kind of Golden. Golden, yeah, yeah. and. It's exact the the three or four pairs that I keep in my rotation now, and one of them is a pair of ultras that Ray gave me, and it's the first pair of shoes 
that I had worn in the last five years that I put on and I don't have to adjust or cut up or put a toe spacer in. And they're great for just getting around outside. And when I try to play, my love is still basketball and that's my problem as well because I have it. So I go back and go and go back a little bit. My ending at Nike was this whole realization of what was finally going on and kind of getting this aha but I had a knee problem. So I played so much basketball in my life. And kind of at this age, I, I think I've come to realize it was because I was always wearing crappy shoes and in, in the wrong position to be doing what I was doing. Um, people call it jumper's knee or it's a patella femoral where your kneecap's not in alignment. So yep. squatting down wasn't too much of a problem, but like going downstairs, uh, is that like eccentric movement of it? Yep. I couldn't take it anymore. And so I went and saw a Portland specialist and he just said, we'll scope it. We'll clean it up. Um, he's like, if your cartilage is really bad or it's really screwed up, I can't tell an MRI enough. Um, we might take it out. So we'll, we'll see. So I wake up from the surgery and he said, I had to take all your cartilage out. So we end up giving you microfracture surgery and we drilled a bunch of holes in your bone and it's going to bring back some regenerative white blood cells. And I'm going, Oh, wow. And he goes, and you're going to have to go home with this machine that's going to bend your leg for you. Every, every two minutes, it does a revolution. But while your new cartilage grows back, it needs to grow back smoothly. And that's how it's going to grow back smoothly. And I, had no, I didn't know any of this. I thought I was going to be back at work, you know, two days later. Right. He said, oh, no, you'll be at home on the floor, you know, for the next six weeks with this machine. I said, like, oh, oh, shit. Man. So... Okay, in my mind, the positive part was I'm going to have new, smooth cartilage, so my knee pain is going to be gone. Um, but the bad part is I have to take a leave of absence from work when I'm having kind of this momentum of I'm doing great in innovation kitchen because I'm making these products that people are liking, but I don't know where I stand. So I'm just trying to email my director over there and saying like, I'd love to work with you full time. What I'm doing at Jordan brand isn't fulfilling. It's just the same stuff. And no matter what I said or how I approached the situation, I never got a real solid response of we need you in the kitchen or we need you here. It was just like, well, it's nice having you here, like doing whatever you're doing. But because I wasn't a responsibility or a liability to anybody, like no one had to manage me. I was kind of on my own that was a good thing because I was just a free agent. I got to create stuff for them, yep. but in a bad sense, no one cared enough to like keep me on or to see where that would go. So when I get back from six or seven weeks at home, um, I go down to the innovation kitchen just to continue where I'd left off. And my space, my desk had just been completely cleared out and I didn't know what happened. And my boss wasn't around. So I start walking around and I see, some lady drinking out of my uh, coffee mug. I see someone else with like my jacket on. Like someone, people just took all my stuff and just took it as their own. I just had to ask for everything back. And like, I'm still here. Um, that's mine. I see some other guy who's literally about to cut up an Air Jordan jacket that I had left on my seat because he wanted to make a project out of it. And I was catching him in the act of doing it. I was like, where'd you get this? I was just on the chair over there. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's so crazy. Yeah, so I get this disgust in my mouth for the Innovation Kitchen area, and then I go back to my Jordan brand area, and I get another new boss who starts the whole process over of, like, let's do this project again, let's start this over, let's sketch over, and I just 
got to this point where I'm like a few days back and this new boss of mine just grills me in front of the other floor designers about not having a, a look or an aesthetic that he was pleased with essentially is what it came down to. And so I came the next day with a ton of sketches and different ideas of how we could change it and just got berated. And I was like, if you want to talk to me like an adult, we should talk as adults, but to belittle me on your first week of this job, this is just weird. And then he would ignore culture. I sat right next to the guy. We, what He was my boss, but we had like this really tight area where like five of us would all sit in one space because they kind of wanted us to work closer versus like in our own pods, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'd sit right next to this guy and he'd say hi to what everybody, you know, give everybody the high five dap in the morning and just ignore me every morning. And it was just so weird that I literally just like talked with my wife on the weekend. And I was just like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. She's like, well, don't do it. It's like, all right. When on Monday morning, I just packed my boxes and I just like shook a few of my friends' hands and like, good luck. I, I don't want to be here anymore. I, good for you. I just completely walked away. And for luckily it was, it was out of just, a little bit of spite, but you know, a disgust, but it worked out because I had seen so much of what their future was going to be that they ended up paying me for next year to not work in the industry. And that helped catapult my family into an opportunity to move down to back to LA to be by her family while we had a three-year-old because at the time, you know, I was invested into this job for Nike and I'm not getting home till six, six seven at night. I'm working my weekends. I'm not spending any time with my kid and I'm way too invested in this bullshit career that's just going nowhere. And so to be able to move down to California and figure out that I'm just going to work for a apparel company, spend time with my kid, it got my mindset changed because in California it's warm outside a lot. So I'm starting to go barefoot a lot more cool. post Nike world and wearing toe spacers. And I got to this point where we did that for about a year and a half. And then I still had the strong desire to make footwear better. You know, it hadn't left me, but I was so disgusted with the way I saw the industry that I just, I stepped away from my own dream really is what it it felt like, but I wasn't completely disappointed because I remained in contact with Ray. Um, We actually went to footwear innovation design summit. I invited him to go with me down to LA just to see what the future footwear was doing. Um, And it was pretty cool to see all these new companies trying to develop, you know, 3D software and how to scan your foot 3D. And um, a lot of people just doing presentations. But it's funny, like the podiatrists that came and did uh, presentations were also wearing like brown wingtip, tight toe, pointy toed shoes. And Ray's like pointing to their feet, just going like, why are you kidding me? How are you going to speak about the foot? And you're wearing, oh man. Right. So we left that, left LA and, moved back to the small town that I'm in now. And the beauty of where we live now is that we're surrounded by family and my two older brothers, they own the town bowling alley. So we have just this small circle of people. Oh, that's and so friends. Cool. Yeah. That we can, we, they've got like a restaurant and bar, but the whole COVID thing sucked because they couldn't be open, but it was pretty cool to have a personal bowling alley and restaurant and bar to our family for the last six, that's seven awesome. months to, to let the kids run around and stuff. Um, but to have this circle around us and where we live, it's like we sold our house in California and it was half the price to live up here mm-hmm. on a four acre property. And I have the whole upstairs is 
you know, everything we need for our home and our, our children's rooms and kitchen. And then the whole downstairs is just my workspace now. Cool. And so there's a ton of uh, sewing machines and materials everywhere. And this is just one half of the downstairs. That's awesome. And it's just my own sample room. And it's a playground. It is. And it's a space that I, I'm not making money making shoes right now. It's, it's, it's a funny tight balance tightrope thing that I'm doing where I have to kind of make a custom jacket because I have some embroidery machines where I can hand make a logo on a jacket or someone's name or whatever, mm-hmm. or sell some of the old thrifted stuff that I have. Cause I collected so much of this stuff that I can add a few things to my store and make some money. And then I'm like, okay, our bank account's cool for the next month or two. I'm going to focus on making another sample pair of shoes and try to solve another problem. So been doing this for like a year and a half and I've been making custom shoes for like family and friends. Um, and it's been a great learning experience. I, I just posted on the Instagram account that I have two of the shoes that I just finished up in the last few weeks, one for my uncle who who measured a size like six and a half on one foot and a size eight on the other foot. Wow. But he's always bought shoes that were size nine because his size eight foot had like a funny toe problem. So he had to squeeze into that. But then his size six foot was always in a size nine. Um, it's, yeah. And I'm thinking like, you've never had a pair of shoes that fit you before. And every time I make a pair of shoes for somebody, I'm hoping for that same result that I found when I made a pair of shoes for my own feet. And I said, holy shit, this is what it should feel like it should feel like I have nothing on my feet except right. when I move, I have a little bit of protection I need, whether it's just some rubber from the rocks or it's just a bit of cushioning for playing some basketball. It's eye opening when you, when I try to put my foot back into a Nike or a Jordan shoe that I was wearing for so many years because one, it squeezes my toes in there where it's uncomfortable, but the weird feeling of going back to heel lifted, basketball shoe compared to the zero drop that I've had. Yeah. It really like makes me realize that the work I've been doing lately has been helping. So that knee surgery I had didn't fix my problems. Surprise. And I still have terrible, terrible knees. And when I spent, you know, the first year that we moved back here sitting over a sewing machine and bent over doing work, I used my legs less and less and it caught up with me to the point where like getting back down the stairs was a huge problem. And I had to Mm -hmm. put a timeout on what's really important right now. And now that we have, you know, some free time in a place where I don't have this stress in my life of a work job situation every day, I need to focus on my knees. And I found a guy on Instagram, actually, his name's knees over toes guy. Have you ever heard of this guy? I've heard of him. (laughs) I don't follow him, but yeah. He was a basketball player who went through the surgeries and all the problems and doctors telling him how to not do things. And he's got this training regimen program that's, you know, something you can do from home without weights and without anything else needed. But it's really just trying to get your knees back over your toes. And when I realized, yeah, it's my ankle that sucks and it's my Achilles that's tight and everything from my base sucks because I rolled my ankle so many times as a skinny basketball player that I think all the scar tissue and crap that was left in my ankle stayed where it was. And then it was my knee that started taking on a little bit more of the force as I played. And when I thought I fixed my knee, I realized it's my foot and ankle that sucks. So I'm, I've been doing this daily training for like the last two months where I'm trying to just get, uh, it's really just trying to get my quads 
some muscle back because it's so hard to build muscle when you can't squat down. Yes. And a lot that, of times the, the hip and the, I always tell people the hip and the ankle are like this. You can't, you can't restore function at one without also addressing the other because they kind of are deeply intertwined. And you know, that I always tell people the knee is this, like this middle child, it's really just a hinge goes one way or the other way. And really it just listens to what your foot and ankle and your hip tell it what to do. So if your foot and ankle are, or your hip aren't really functional to the point where they know what to tell your knee what to do, then it does poor patterns repetitively through movement. And then it basically wears through your skeleton quicker than what you should, right? Like if you're using your knee to do twice the amount of load or three times the amount of load as it should be doing because your hips aren't pulling their weight because your ankle's tight, then you wear through your natural sort of genetics, your natural cartilage much faster. Um, but the beautiful thing is that the body's insanely adaptable, right? If you give it the right inputs, I think people underestimate how much the fixed sitting position um, affects your movement patterns. So it makes you more quad dominant, makes you use much more of your quads and puts a lot more stress on your patellofemoral joint. Um, and it makes you less hip dominant where you're not using your glutes, your hip stabilizers, you're not using the right mechanics to put the big load with the big muscles. Um, Anyway, we'll chat down, down the road because I look forward to these conversations even off air, just talking about footwear intermittently. And then we can also chat about your knee because uh, you can get that function back. You can get back to playing basketball, literally. Um, that, you just have to make me. sure you know the right things, to do, right? So. It's music to my ears. And that's what I found through this guy that I found on Instagram is that like you, you don't have to give up on being able to jump and run and play basketball. No. Like, and when the, I hear that and see the success stories he's had. So in two months, I've gone from I can't get down my stairs to I can now walk down my stairs, which is something I haven't been able to do for five years. Wow. And I yeah. And I mean, I've only improved maybe five to 10% of where I was two months ago, but I see, I see an improvement and I feel exactly what you just said. When I know that my hip and my ankle, in my mind, I'm flexing them really hard, like as I'm doing a squat and I activate those muscles, I don't feel anything in my knee. And you're right. It's just like a hinge. When I usually do a squat, it feels like it's all in my quad and my knee because I sat down for the last 15 years behind a fucking computer right. doing work working for other companies and building shoes. And I didn't realize that all the sitting down bent over wasn't resurrected. It wasn't changed because I would play basketball for sometimes and, you know, an hour a day over the, between age and 30 and 35, I'd play maybe an hour every day or two, as opposed to the ton that I was playing before that. But in that age 30 to 35 bracket, I was sitting down seven, eight, 10 hours a day. And I think people assume that the physical activity offsets the sitting. But what yeah. I found to be true is that when you sit for long periods of time, you update your movement software in a way that's more friendly to making you good at sitting. So, <laughs> and, then, and then you use that updated software with impacts and then it's literally just a recipe for disaster. So instead of basketball being good for you, it becomes an injury risk factor because you're using sitting software to play basketball. It's, not, it's, not, like, it's like using a Dodge Caravan on a, on a rally <laughs> track. It's, like it's not made for that. <laughs> so. oh, I love this conversation. No, I only stand up at my computer now. I have a jacked up table. I try cool. to do everything I can. I haven't worn shoes inside for years and I, I feel my life changing, but I don't feel my footwear changing. So where I'm at in life now is as much time as I can spend making some of this stuff where I'm getting these just what, this is the pair of shoes I made for my uncle that I put them on my Instagram account, but they were so tight. I had to cut open this uh, toe box to like allow some more movement. That but is awesome. 
the the shoes that I'm making for myself now are really just about promoting what I feel feels the best that my body's never experienced. Even though I was at my strongest, you know, in the college high school areas where I could I could touch a foot or two over the rim. Yep. Um, I never felt any pain in any part of my body. It just hadn't caught up yet. But now that it has caught up and I realize what movement actually feels the best for the whole chain reaction of just squatting down or standing up. Yep. And I know what muscles to activate versus use. I think I just always use my lower back and my knees to do most yep. of my movements because That's they were exactly the strongest. Yep. And I, it hasn't helped me, but now that I know kind of a more correct movement for my body, cause I've crippled, um, the footwear has to match it. And I can't yeah. do any of this movement in any footwear other than those ultras that I have and the custom shoes that I made for myself in the kitchen. So I know. Dude, I got to send person. you a pair. These are the shoes that we just came out with. So they call it the FC 0.5. We literally mail them to people in an envelope, but literally there is like nothing to it. You can put them in your pocket. And that's it. I love it. It's I like, love so it. I'll have to send you a couple of pairs of these to just experiment with. Cause it's literally just, it's lastless design. It's literally a sole and an upper they're sewn together. There's no last use. And the upper is like as flexible neoprene. So it, it, there's only six sizes and they accommodate from a women's six to a men's 13. And it's like the most simple, it's like a water, it's like a sock with protection and that is it. And it's so simple and blew my mind. So we've had really good uh, response from our launch weekend a couple weeks ago, but um, fire me an email with your address and uh, measure your foot length and width, and I'll fire you over a couple pairs so that you can just see it, try it, and maybe get ideas from it because it's super simple. But it's, I tested these for two months. I ran, I walked, I hiked, I, I literally went paddleboarding in the water. I did everything with them, and literally we sell these for fifty bucks Canadian, which is like thirty-five bucks, and they held up magically. And I was like wow, this is an eye-opener that less can be more. And if you just optimize the, the individual materials, you can make something super durable that's pretty affordable and literally is like, like I said, we ship them in flat envelopes. So it's, it's kind of like a very disruptive way of seeing footwear, but I think really powerful. That is very powerful. I love, I love that because, so I think my ultimate goal about where I want to take footwear someday is that a custom pair of footwear can be affordable and accessible and quick. Cause right now, if not even an athlete, if you're just average Joe and you want a custom made pair of shoes for yourself, it's, I mean, you're looking at thousand dollars to start to have someone custom make a last that's your foot to have them. Right. And, and to me, it's almost like I'd rather find a situation. Uh, this is like my far reach business goal. It's almost like have a, a, fast food chains where you're just small little buildings in a bunch of towns come into the little shop you get your foot measured you pick out a few materials and colors that you want you pick out amongst you know a couple different styles that are easy to make and you're either getting a high top or a low top and you're getting this much cushioning or this much cushioning you're yep. getting an aggressive rubber traction or a less rubber aggressive traction and you're just picking the ingredients and essentially i want to make it so simple that you don't need a team of experts in a factory to do this you don't even need skilled laborers. That's what I'm trying to figure out down here is that like a lastless made shoe sounds impossible, but it's not. Cause if you seam and engineer things the right way around a person's foot, you're just readjusting that pattern slightly. And if I can kind of master this idea of if you want more heel shape or you want more toe fit, like mm -hmm. it should just be about moving some seams around right. so that it fits your foot. Right. And to me, that should be an affordable solution to have people go, aha, 
that's what a custom-made shoe feels like because right now that's not accessible for someone but like a neoprene booty like kind of what you're showing if it has enough support underneath the foot and you're comfortable wearing it out sh- outside that's awesome and that's yeah, cause, amazing cause, and i've always had this vision for like even blending your concept with a concept we've got called the shoe box where you take a 20 foot long shipping container you plop it somewhere in a city four sides flop down and people can come and get, and, and you literally, when that contain when all the supplies and materials and, and stock of that container is done, you put the sides back up, you send it back to HQ, fill it back up, send it to a different city. And then you don't even have the overhead and you can literally uh-huh. like gorilla style, get in the middle, the heart of a city, build a culture around educating people about foot health, but also blending that with an outlet for people to be able to, to, to get footwear, right? Whether that's a custom option that they can option out and come pick up the next day, or whether that's like something they literally just leave because there's flexible sizing systems. Um, we'll have, I think we should chat once a month. Oh, because yeah. This is like, For sure. it's pretty, it's fun to speak with people that have had this insider view, know the friction in the system and can see a future where things can be done differently and have the skill set to be able to actually get shit done because it's, you know, uh, putting these big concepts that there is great, but the execution is really what is the limiting step. And, um, you know, this, this stuff is possible. And, and one of our missions now that we're into footwear is like, and we've seen the response that people have had from these SC.5s, the next version, uh, we want to be able to make upgrade the sole to a Bibram sole. And we want to make them in Canada because it's literally two seams, two seams, yeah, right. upper to lower. And then the back half. And it's like, how simple how simple is that? And that's, I think can, is to making footwear domestically is being able to make it so simple that unskilled labor can literally attach one part to the other part, mm-hmm. put it in an envelope and then literally sell, literally make shoes locally that are sold to the, to the local market. Like that would be super powerful. And there's nothing but positive around every part of that too. And right. I think the fact that you have the, the education behind it, I, I don't think I could, personally do my whole project and be successful in doing so unless I had someone like you or Ray also a part of what I was doing to help educate the reasoning of why I'm doing it. I can explain why I'm doing it, but that explanation still comes from a shoe designer who might just be like, oh, that's that guy's opinion. If I have your opinion and Ray's collective opinion about what works best for the natural anatomy of our bodies, and then you understand it and then you go, oh, that's what I've been wearing, but this is what I should be wearing. That I think those two can go so quick together in helping and not even to help sell a shoe. It's to help promote someone's health to be better because they hadn't right. known any better before that day. And now that right. they have that knowledge, I think there's going to be a desire for a shoe that fits them, but without any option. Man, I love your concept combined with my concept. We'll go on the road together soon. <laughs> I'm down. I've literally been looking up trucks that you can pick up a shipping container and just drive it around. And I think because I see footwear because, I mean, people always ask. I'm the guy walking around barefoot that started a footwear retail company. It's like people are like, don't you sell shoes? Why don't you wear them? I'm like, I only wear them when I need to. But yep. I see footwear as literally when you're selling a natural piece of footwear, you're selling foot health. The tool that people use to achieve that is the what covers their foot. So it's really not even about the shoe. And I've never thought it was about the shoe. It's about the foot, but the shoe is a necessary element to protect your foot and allow you to, you know, abide by some semblance of societal norms. Cause you can't go barefoot everywhere. I live in Canada. It's minus 40 sometimes like I'm going to cover my foot. Um, but I want to do it with something that doesn't compromise my foot function. And I don't think it's that hard of a problem to solve to do that because it's actually, 
involves less, right? Less technology. You have all the tech, just cover it with something that protects it from damage and temperature. <laughs> like it's literally that simple, which is why uh -huh. something like this little neoprene booty can actually be a super effective movement shoe because there's really not much to it. If, if all you do is bring it down to first principles and say, we want to protect the foot. What's the simplest way of doing that? Then it's like, well, shit, footwear just got a whole lot simpler to manufacture and design and to customize. Uh -huh. So, uh -huh. <laughs> powerful stuff man oh right, god yes so where can people where can people find you what you're working on i believe you have that uh, online store um and where can people find you uh, if they want to look you up yeah so uh, based on our conversation i'd rather people who listen to you go to my instagram account where i'm building footwear and all i'm cool. showing is just my process of how i'm doing things like there's no secret to doing what I'm doing. So I want people to see how I'm doing it. And I want people to realize that as I get better at this, that it's going to be easier to digest that you'll see that I'm going to be able to make a shoe and it's only going to take a few steps. And I kind of want people cool. to see that process. And that Instagram account is Dr. F shoes. Now let me frame it's spelled D R underscore F underscore shoes s-h-o-e-s perfect and half of that name is because it says f shoes and i like that right now because you know <laughs> fuck shoes because they suck but the doctor part has nothing to do with other than my ebay name 20 years ago when i started selling shoes was dr funks cool and my store that i sell my nike collection at is drfunks.com d-o-c-t-o-r-f-u-n-k-s and that's my other Instagram account, which has, I think that account has like 5,000 followers. And my cool. one that I have more passion for has like 200 followers. But I love the conversation I get out of those 200 people versus the 5,000 people who it's usually just like a question about some Jordan shoe that right. I have a bunch of sneakerheads that follow me. And I, I, I like conversating and talking with them. But cool. it's kind of funny how I'm like transitioning out of that life and more into like, I don't want to anti-promote Nike because I it still pays my family's bills with selling the stuff that I've collected over the years. Yep. But at the same time, I know how I want to build shoes. So I kind of just like keep those two voices separate a little yep. bit and just say like, here's how I want to build shoes, but I'm also selling things over here. Yeah. But, no, like the way I look at it is like some things my brother does annoys me and I'll tell him when he's messing up and I don't like some things, but I still love them. Like I still like, you know, it's like, I still love Nike as, as the brand that I grew up with that had a philosophy around it of catering to athletes, doing amazing innovations, all that kind of stuff. They've gotten a little bit off track. I think the public, as the public becomes more informed, they're going to be guided to get back more on track. I think they'll have to. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't hate them either. I just don't like some of the things they're doing. And, and I think that the culture and the value set of what guides their decisions uh, needs to be updated. And once it's updated, I think they can come back and flourish as a beautiful company that they started out as, but they're, they've kind of lost their way a little bit. Uh -huh. Agreed. Agreed. We have more talking to do. Yes, we have a lot more talking. So we'll keep in touch. And like I said, send me your dress. I'll fire you over a couple of pairs of those SC.5s. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So um, anyway, for those listening, well, thank you, Chad, for taking the time today. Two hours flies by pretty damn quick. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah but we'll, we'll chat again, maybe off air, on air. We'll see. I'd love to, in future, hear your thoughts about where you think the future is of, of footwear is going, which we already kind of chatted about. But I also really... I'm very curious to hear uh, creative people's process. Like what is your creative process? How has that evolved over time? So I think we've got another podcast in the future if you're up for it. Um, and oh, yeah. other than that, I'm happy to 
chat. Just I'll give you my uh, number so you can WhatsApp me and then we'll, we'll figure it out. I appreciate that. I love having the conversation with you too, because uh, like I said, I don't get this time to talk with people about any of these conversations, but this is what is on the forefront of my thinking when I'm downstairs in my basement every day. So I want to have more podcasts. I want to have more conversations because I see Ray like once every three months, but it's not enough to keep that conversation going. You know, I need more of this. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds good, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm engaged with it and I enjoy it just as much as you. So for everyone listening, we hope you enjoyed that episode of shoe talk. I think, uh, I think it was really insightful to hear the inside cogs of Nike and sort of your experience and your story. So thank you for sharing that Chad. And uh, yeah, for anyone listening, thanks for your time. We'll catch you next week.